0: Moonrise is sponsored by Hunters on Amazon Prime Video. Inspired by true events, Hunters stars Al Pacino as the leader of a ragtag pack of Nazi hunters. Watch February 21st on Amazon Prime Video.
1: The sound of the muffled drum sweeps in melancholy waves over the hushed throng, a hush broken only by a stifled sob, a murmured prayer. A whole people is lifted up in common sorrow and ennobled in their hearts. Down this avenue of sadness, they bring President John F. Kennedy, martyred hero, to lie in state under the great dome of the Capitol.
2: President John F. Kennedy's assassination in November 1963 cut short his life and his presidency. It was a shocking, terrifying, and grief-filled moment for the country, one that still carries deep emotions, and one that over the past 50 years has left us with the question, what if? What if he hadn't died? How would our country and our history have been different? When it comes to the Apollo program, It would be easy to imagine that Kennedy's death put the program in jeopardy. But what if the tragedy had the opposite effect? What if it was his death, in fact, not his life, that made the moon landing destiny?
3: If Kennedy had not been assassinated, we would not have landed on the moon in 1969.
2: This is space policy expert Howard McCurdy. Let's take a minute and just imagine what might have happened to the Apollo program had the president lived.
3: I don't know how it would have unfolded. A cooperative venture that got there 30 years later, or uh, like the International Space Station, or something where we just forget it. But he would have abandoned his own objective.
2: After all, Kennedy was looking for ways to get out of the ambitious commitment he had made to reach the moon within the decade. It would have been so
0: easy for him to say, maybe in 64 or especially 1965, where um, the American program is making good progress.
2: This is space historian Roger Lanius. It
0: would be easy for Kennedy to say, you know, the crisis has passed. We don't have to accomplish this on the aggressive schedule that we, that we thought we did in 1961. And we can turn the clock off or turn the clock back a little bit Eh, if it takes another five years that that's okay he wouldn't kill the program but um but he but he might have turned the clock off and doing that uh would have changed the dynamics pretty substantially
2: but that's an alternate reality we'll never know president john kennedy was assassinated on november 22nd 1963 And the torch passed to Vice President Lyndon Johnson to figure out what came next for the country and for the moonshot.
4: No words are sad enough to express our sense of loss. No words are strong enough to express our determination to continue the forward thrust of America that he began. The dream of conquering the vastness of space. The dream of partnership across the Atlantic and across the Pacific as
2: well. I'm Lillian Cunningham with The Washington Post, and this is Moonrise.
1: There's only one word to describe. spectacular accomplishment is all that is claimed. Russia has moved ahead of the US once more in the race for the moon.
2: We don't know how exactly it would be impossible to know that but it did and not just president kennedy's death the story of getting to the moon is the story of so many people's actions and decisions and hopes and fears and lives knotted together in a beautiful tangle like any story change one thread and the whole thing would be different Johnson knew all the reasons why Kennedy had pitched the idea at the United Nations of turning Apollo into a joint project with the Soviets. But Johnson wasn't sure he should continue down that path. In the week after the assassination, he asked NASA Administrator Jim Webb over the phone what he thought about it. Hello. Webb said...
5: Space may be one of the things, if you approached it secretly and without too much fanfare in the open, that you might possibly have some kind of a...
4: a agreement, agreement
5: on. Sir? Agreement on. Yeah, well, you, you and Khrushchev might be able to come closer together on this than many other matters. Yeah. But
2: that said, a joint venture wasn't Webb's preference. And it wasn't Johnson's either. So what would it take for the U.S. alone to pull off the moon goal?
4: In our budget next year, uh, you know pretty well uh, what they got out to go down for you.
5: Uh, they gave me originally
4: five billion six hundred million,
5: with two hundred million put in a reserve for manned space flight. Now uh, this is going to present a real serious problem unless you're prepared to slip the lunar landing out of this decade but this is a subject we need to talk of with uh, considerable...
4: Command. Maybe we can step it up a year later.
5: Well, uh, I think there's some things we can do that won't hurt you too much in your overall mm-hmm. budget, but which will make we, it look better.
4: We got to we got to get one that's uh, fairly reasonable, and we're getting close to the day, and it's got to go up there, so I'll be talking to you about it.
5: Thank you, sir. Call me if there's anything at all of any kind I can do, personal or official.
4: Thank you, Jim. Thank you.
2: Johnson was thinking... He knew that if ever the Congress and the American public could be convinced to pour their full support behind it, now was the moment. The next day, on the eve of Thanksgiving, Lyndon Johnson addressed Congress. Then on Thanksgiving itself, my fellow Americans. he made a televised announcement from the Oval Office to the American public.
4: I come before you to ask your help, to ask... Your strength to ask your prayers.
2: In it, he bound John F. Kennedy's legacy to space. And to honor his memory and the
4: future of the works that he started, I have today determined that station number one of the Atlantic Missile Range and the NASA Launch Operations Center in Florida shall hereafter be known as the John F. Kennedy Space Center.
2: Then two months later... When Johnson submitted a budget to Congress, he sealed that legacy through funding. He asked Congress to increase what it was giving to NASA. That way, the late president's Apollo program could charge forward in honor of him.
6: Lyndon Johnson had been a long
2: advocate for Space flight, for human space flight specifically. This is Margaret White, to camp up the National Air and Space Museum. And in many ways, after Kennedy's assassination, Johnson uses the memory of the
6: assassinated president as a political tool to keep the momentum going, to keep the funding going, and to fulfill the vision of uh, Kennedy's promise. In a way that Johnson had perhaps always been more dedicated to than Kennedy had.
2: As Senate majority leader with his Sputnik hearings, Johnson had driven the founding of NASA. As vice president, he had persuaded Kennedy to commit to the Apollo program. Now, as president himself, he once more saw an opportunity to enshrine space exploration into policy. Together, Johnson and NASA cast the Apollo program as Kennedy's great dying wish.
0: And Jim Webb, who guided NASA through this period, he would pull it like a gun when anybody threatened his budget. Uh, You mean to tell me you want to end the dying wish of our slain president? And you know, he usually got people to back off.
2: Over the past several years, Johnson had become attached to space policy. He had learned to appreciate its intrinsic merits. But what he had also learned was that space was an excellent political tool for all sorts of things, particularly for the thing that was always highest up on his agenda.
3: (laughs) The, The reality was Johnson was trying to transform the South. He was trying to modernize the South, take it out of the early 1800s and put it in the 1960s and 1970s. And the space race was a principal method for doing this. And Johnson's reasoning was amazing. He was a progressive southerner who came out of of Texas during the Great Depression. And Johnson was absolutely convinced that the way to solve the civil rights problem and the agrarian backwardness of the South was to bring
0: them technology. When you put a lot of money into uh, NASA centers, most of which were, the, certainly the human spaceflight ones, were located in, in the South. And in some cases, you know, depressed areas of the Deep South. Um, you can you can sort of transform the area uh, through that investment. and And it did that in lots of places, I mean. You know, Huntsville, Alabama was a sleepy little cotton town uh, until uh, the NASA center was stood up there in 1960, and with, with Apollo money flowing into the city, it sort of transforms it into a, a technological um, and scientific center and changes the nature of, of, of northern uh, Alabama.
2: The one in Houston was originally called the Manned Spacecraft Center. Today, we know it as the Johnson Space Center. It was established in 1961, shortly after Kennedy announced the moon mission. And its location was very much the result of Johnson's efforts.
0: Johnson wanted to put that in the South, no question about that. Uh, And he wanted it to go to Texas because he'd been Senator from
3: Texas. And so he would go around like Johnny Appleseed and plant these centers in Houston, actually Clear Lake City, Huntsville, Alabama, and other places around the South, as a way of bringing engineers who would think scientifically instead of anti into the South. And he thought that would be the motor engine for creating a new southern, a progressive Southern society.
2: Johnson had helped to steer the establishment of these space centers before Kennedy's assassination. But now that he was president himself, Johnson was committed to keeping these engines of economic and social renewal roaring.
0: Yeah, no, I I mean, I I think it's an easy step to say that he viewed NASA and especially the Apollo program as a part of his great society effort. I mean, he he came into office with a very progressive uh, domestic agenda. And so um, his, you know, his war on poverty, his, his efforts to sort of remake society uh, in the 1964, 65, 66 time frame, uh, Apollo very much plays
2: into that. There were 400,000 people working across the United States on the Apollo program, many of them in the South, These projects couldn't grind to a halt now, certainly not while Johnson was president. Johnson also discovered that he could use NASA as a tool to gain political leverage over members of Congress from everywhere across the country. Here he is telling Webb over the phone to allocate NASA money to engineering programs in Minnesota and Wisconsin. Can
4: you, can you find a hundred or so thousand dollars for some reason to soup up Minnesota and, and uh, Wisconsin while, we, while we're doing that uh, later on in the year where I can get them off howling off this $170 million? Ain't you take 200000 out of your North Carolina wife's funds and put part of 100000 in Madison and 100000 in Minnesota and let them advertise it and bella and talk big about it while we're trying to get some little something reprogrammed? Uh, for I your do, old friend, for uh, your I, old friend, dear old friend? i do anything in the world you tell me to do. I, 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 we've got...
2: In another call, Johnson told Webb that he needed to direct NASA funds to Purdue University to help out House Minority Leader Charles Halleck, who represented Indiana.
4: And I need to do anything I can for Charlie Halleck. Now, isn't there something you can do? How about letting me sit down with him and get a full picture of what his problem is and how he works it, and let me talk with him and see if if he and I can't work out something that he'll come back to you and and tell you uh, he's pleased with. All right. Now, when do you do that? Do it when he wants to. When you want to sit down and have lunch, Jim Webb, and tell him what your problem is and see what he can do. Tuesday? Tuesday at your office at what time? Uh right, any time he says. One o'clock? One o'clock. All right.
2: All, all right,
4: right, now, Jim? Yes, sir? This is it, because this, this boy played with me for 25 years. He's against us when he has to be against us in his party, but but he, he really works with me when he can, so let's help him. I'll do everything I can, and I hope when he comes back to you, he'll tell you that I've. Uh, he's not satisfied, and he comes back to me. Well, then I'm gonna, I'm gonna be talking to you again. Yes, sir. Okay. Thank you, sir.
2: You can hear in the White House call records that this happened over and over again. The result was that Johnson got members of Congress on both sides of the aisle to owe him favors and to consistently vote in support of increasing NASA's funding. It also had another even longer term effect. It spread aerospace and engineering programs across American universities. Let's leave the United States right here for the time being and spin over to the Soviet Union. An entirely different story had been playing out there while the Apollo program was getting up and running. Let's rewind for a moment to the late 1950s. The chief Soviet rocket designer, Sergei Korolev, had pulled off Sputnik 1 and Sputnik 2, and he was majorly in the good graces of Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev.
6: So um, the first couple years from, you know, 57 uh, into 58, um, Korolev can can do no wrong, Uh, Khrushchev thinks he's great.
2: This is NASA chief historian Bill Barry.
6: And um, suddenly, you know, Khrushchev's being respected around the world, and people are afraid of the Soviet Union, and so they're less likely to attack it. That makes him happy, makes him look good, um, solves his security problems.
2: In 1959, Korolev then pulled off something even more spectacular— though strangely far fewer people today have heard of this achievement than Sputnik. What he did was he launched Luna. Luna was the first probe ever to hit the moon, or to hit any celestial body for that matter. The probe didn't have any humans on board, but Luna made it all the way to the moon and crashed directly into it. It was this amazing technical feat that Korolev had pulled off. And especially when you consider this is 1959, two years before Kennedy was even thinking of announcing a moon goal. Now, when the probe hit the moon, it scattered pennants, almost like coins, on the cratered surface of the moon. And on the pennants was the launch date of Luna on one side, and on the other side was the hammer and the sickle of the Soviet flag. Sputnik, Luna, these were all great publicity for the Soviet Union, and they were incredible accomplishments in their own right. But Khrushchev's military leaders were getting annoyed These space stunts were coming at the expense of actual military missile development. And at some point, they said, the United States was going to realize that. And the Soviet Union is going to end up looking weak and foolish for just doing these stunts. And so, these military leaders started telling Khrushchev they really needed Sergei Korolev, whose primary job was supposed to be to design weapons, They really needed him to turn his attention back to ballistic missiles.
6: The military leaders didn't like him because they thought he was a dreamer about the space stuff and what they really needed was for him to do his duty and build a missile that that really worked.
2: In particular, the higher ups in the military wanted Korolev working on a type of missile that couldn't be attacked by the United States even before it launched. They wanted a missile that was protected underground a missile, kind of like the Americans were developing, and they kept stressing this to the Soviet Premier. So,
6: Khrushchev meets with Korolev at, at some meeting, and it's not clear when and where this happened. But um, he meets with, with Korolev and says, um, "Hey, why don't we build a safer missile? It'll make my my military guys happier, uh, and it'll be more effective against the United States. And you know, why don't we just like put missiles in in silos in the ground, underground? And and Korolev goes. Impossible, can't be done. You know, don't worry about the missile I gave you is the best thing you got. And don't, you know, this is this is just not simply not feasible. At which point, Khrushchev reaches into his coat pocket and pulls out his copy, his translated copy of Aviation Week Space Technology, with an article about the Minuteman missile, which is going to be put in silos by the United States.
2: Either Korolev knew that it was possible, and he was trying to dupe Khrushchev so that he wouldn't have to do it, or Korolev really didn't know that was possible, in which case maybe he was getting too distracted by these space projects. The fact is, either way, it didn't make him look good.
6: And at that point, um, Khrushchev loses faith in Korolev and realizes that Korolev's objectives don't match up with his own.
2: Khrushchev cared about space insofar as he loved the publicity that a good space accomplishment would get him here and there. But he didn't care about space the way that Korolev did.
6: I think Korolev had great ideas about what he wanted to do. I mean, he wanted to follow the dream. And, and, and it's the same one that von Braun had, uh, which was, you know, we're going to build space stations, we're going to learn how to operate in Earth orbit, and then we're going to go to the moon and then to Mars... And, and things will be great. Um, he didn't quite get his way anymore, though.
2: After that meeting, Khrushchev started to disempower Korolev. He didn't trust him anymore. He didn't trust Korolev, even though this was a man who had been put through hell by the government and was still dedicating his life to this grueling rocketry work. Khrushchev first punished him by transferring his boss, Leonid Brezhnev. Brezhnev had been this champion and protector of Korolev's space work, but Khrushchev decided he would no longer be around to shield Korolev. Then, Khrushchev started giving more power and more resources to other Soviet designers in this effort to create, like, an internal rivalry that would knock Korolev down to size. And yet the thing was, there was no one quite like Korolev, No one who was quite as able to pull off some spectacular space accomplishment when suddenly the country needed it. So begrudgingly, Khrushchev still found himself calling on Korolyev's talents each time he wanted to show up the United States. Korolev would be given isolated space assignments. Beat the Americans to launching a human into space. Beat the Americans to floating outside a capsule. But there was no long-term program he was allowed to work on.
6: The the policy in the Soviet Union for the space program at the time was basically one-off things. You know, uh, Okay, can you launch a guy into space? Yeah, okay, that program's approved. Thank you. You can go do that. You know? And then... Yeah, okay, we need something else. The
1: Russians chalk up another victory in the space race as they put two manned spacecraft into orbit within 24 hours of each other.
2: Korolev would be put under intense pressure to pull off some space trick, and then he would have to get back to his real job, slaving away at missiles.
1: The Russians surprise with another first in the person of Alexei Leonov, who they say became the first man to walk around in space. Russia has moved ahead of the U.S. once more in the race for the moon.
2: Korolev had orchestrated the first spacewalk. He also sent the first woman to space in June 1963, Valentina Tereshkova. This wasn't part of some big plan to integrate female cosmonauts into the Russian space program. It was this very specific jab at the United States. At the time, Female pilots were in the U.S. news for meeting with Lyndon Johnson and testifying on Capitol Hill about how unfair it was that they couldn't apply to be astronauts.
4: Uh, there's no legitimate reasons. There's no, uh, no reasons at all why, why we haven't used women astronauts. I still pass the same tests that the, the male military jet test pilots had.
2: And the response they were getting from the American government was, it's just not possible. You know, women's bodies can't take those conditions in space. So, the Soviets decide they're going to orchestrate Tereshkova's flight really just as a way of saying, hmm, looks like communism can do it. A similar one-upping happens when the U.S. is about to launch multiple people into space for the first time. Korolev was suddenly told beat the Americans to that. Never mind that he'd basically been given no runway, no support, had no time to work toward that pretty big goal. Every space project threatened to be his final one unless he could pull it off at the last minute. And the thing was, he would. Each time, he would do the impossible.
6: And so uh, Korolev and his team... Uh, you know, brilliantly, find a way to take the same one-person capsule, and they would find a way to stuff three people into it, with the parachutes out and uh, and the ejection seats, and uh, and they they send them up without spacesuits on.
2: But by the end of 1963, Kennedy was assassinated, and something changed.
6: Johnson comes in and basically says, you know, the Apollo program, the land on the moon, is a legacy that we're going to fulfill from our you know, late president, Uh, it becomes really clear that the United States is really serious about going to the moon by spring of 1964.
2: And that's when it hit Khrushchev.
6: The Soviets realize, you know, if the United States goes and lands on the moon before we do, you know, all of this propaganda benefit that we've had from this, which is really critical to the legitimacy of the Soviet Union internally, but also externally with all the allies that they've been building in the 60s, all these newly independent countries. So. U.S. beating him to the moon suddenly becomes really critical and they realize you know not only is this a threat that was made a couple years ago but now there's a president there who's who's dedicated to make it happen and, and we need to do something about it and in August of 1964 the Soviet leadership finally makes a decision about entering the moon race so the moon race didn't begin in May 1961 when President Kennedy went to Congress it began in August of 1964 when the Soviets say holy mackerel the Americans are gonna beat us to the moon and we need to do something
2: the Soviets had pulled off a lot of space firsts, but the U.S. was actually much farther ahead in the moon race.
1: The Gemini program comes to a triumphant conclusion, giving the United States virtually every record in manned space flight.
2: Many Americans had started to think, wait, maybe we're far enough ahead that this isn't really a race anymore and we can start taking it easy.
6: So this is weird, everything's out of sync. You know, know, we think the moon race starts in the 61. It doesn't really start until 64. We think it's over in 64, and it's really starting to heat up.
2: Khrushchev had no option but to put Sergei Korolev back in charge. Well, not in charge, exactly. Khrushchev needed Korolev to spearhead the Soviet moon landing program because Korolev was the country's best hope for winning the space race. But Khrushchev still didn't trust him. He made it clear that Korolev had no safety net, one step out of line, and he would be off the job. Khrushchev even put another designer in charge of a competing program that would send a crew of cosmonauts around the moon. What he was doing was making Korolev not only prove that he could beat the United States to the moon, but that he could beat his fellow countrymen. In 1964, not long after these dueling moon programs were set in motion in the Soviet Union, something very dramatic happened. The official Russian announcement said he resigned. Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev was ousted.
1: The Reds say ill health prompted Khrushchev to step down. Observers say that his abortive feud with Red China that broke apart the front of monolithic communism was the real reason. A man who clawed and fought his way to the top.
2: Khrushchev was last heard from in public when he spoke over the radio with three Russian cosmonauts who were orbiting Earth. But before their capsule could even return, Khrushchev was gone. Out. He was removed by the party and put under house arrest.
1: The crowds that once cheered Khrushchev wildly were left in the dark, as to just what went on when the Central Committee met to act on his retirement and to name Leonid Brezhnev as the new leader of the party.
2: In this tangled, twisting story, the new Soviet leader who came to power was Leonard Brezhnev.
1: Brezhnev is known among Western diplomats as the red in the gray flannel suit.
2: This is the man who was Sergei Korolev's boss, the one who was transferred when Khrushchev and Korolev had their falling out. Now,
1: for better or worse, the Khrushchev era has come to a close.
6: Brezhnev had been closely associated with Korolev. And, and it, you know, Korolev had made Brezhnev look really good until he had the falling out with Khrushchev. Um, so uh, when Brezhnev comes back in, suddenly Korolev's favor rises again.
2: With Brezhnev in charge of the Soviet Union, Korolev now found himself lifted by the tides of politics that before had been crashing against him. He was Finally empowered to truly lead the Soviet space program. And he incorporated some of these internal rival projects into a more cohesive, long-range vision for how to get the Soviet Union to the moon.
6: By the beginning of 1966, it looks like they might have a path. The United States, you know, doesn't succeed as as quickly as as they might. Uh, If they have problems and they get slowed down, um, you know, there's, there's a glimmer at the end of the tunnel.
2: Korolev can see the way to the moon. He was juggling numerous projects throughout 1964, 1965. He was hard at work designing the Soyuz, which was a new spacecraft that would be big enough and advanced enough to carry humans to the moon. In the meantime, he also needed to figure out how to get a module to touch down softly on the lunar surface. The Americans were working on this too. How could they get a module to slow down, to break as it neared the moon's surface? And what if you couldn't even land on the moon's surface? What if it wasn't solid like Earth's? To some extent, that was a fear planted in both the US and the Soviet engineers' minds by a popular British science fiction writer at the time, Arthur C. Clarke. He had published a novel in 1961 called A Fall of Moon Dust. It was very popular, and in it, a spaceship that was carrying wealthy tourists visiting the moon sank into a deep sea of dust on the lunar surface. So Korolev was working on this probe that could test a soft landing on the moon and that could survey the conditions there. And the American space program was working on something similar. Korolev was also working on probes that he could send to Venus. The whole solar system now felt within reach. By winter of 1965, all of Korolev's projects were charging forward. Normally, he was working around the clock, but he started to disappear every so often to a hospital in Moscow on Granovsky Street. It was known as the Little Kremlin, since it was a hospital that only Russia's most important people could use. Korolev was definitely in pain, but he wouldn't have just worked through it, if not for the fact that communist leaders were increasingly intent on protecting his health, and they forced him to see the doctor.
6: The Soviet leaders were concerned because he's the golden goose who's laying these eggs for them, and so they want to make sure he's okay.
2: He made some doctor's visits in December 1965, and he was told that it looked like he had a benign polyp in his colon and that he should have surgery to remove it in the new year. Shortly before Christmas, he and his wife attended a friend's 50th birthday dinner at a quaint little restaurant in Moscow. They were laughing so hard that night that they cried. He celebrated New Year's Eve a week later. Then Korolev spent the first couple of days in January working alone, in the design bureau, while others were enjoying the short holiday break. An article that he wrote about the future of spaceflight came out during that time in the Pravda newspaper under a pseudonym. The last line of his piece was The human mind knows no limits. On January 4th, Korolev wrapped up some work in his office. And he said a quick goodbye to some of his deputies, who knew that he was reluctantly taking a bit of time off for his operation. Korolev had on his fur hat and his coat when he said goodbye. Actually, he just said to them, well, carry on. Then he walked out the door. The next day, he checked into the hospital and he stayed there a week for examinations. He turned 59 there in the hospital, and then two days later, he had the operation.
6: They insisted that the, um, the Minister of Health, who was a surgeon, do the surgery because he's the Minister of Health, obviously the best doctor in Soviet Union. Also the doctor that probably spent the least time in the operating yeah, room. And, he, right. and this, this, as the story goes, they, when they opened Korolev up, they found other problems.
2: There's no definitive account But one of Korolev's deputies, whose name was Boris Chertok, he wrote a memoir years later that has about as much detail as you could hope for. According to him, they found a large tumor inside Korolev's abdomen. The operation was supposed to be really quick, but it ended up lasting more than four hours. During that time, The Minister of Health had to call in other surgeons to help him because one thing after another started going wrong and he was ill-prepared. It was a complete tragedy. Korolev hemorrhaged and his heart stopped pumping. He bled out right there on the operating table and died. The hospital relayed the news over the phone to Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev. Korolev's wife was in the waiting room, and she got the news firsthand. She called his colleagues on the rocket design team, the only friends Korolev really had. The Soviet's chief rocket designer was dead.
6: Huge blow. This is the the genius behind the whole program um, is you know is no longer there.
2: Brezhnev decided to authorize the publication of an obituary for Korolev, which finally revealed his identity, his existence. The United States had long been broadcasting everything and everyone that was involved in its side of the space race. But the Soviet Union had taken the opposite approach. It had guarded the details of its engineers, particularly Sergei Korolev, like they were a deep state secret. In theory, it was a way of protecting him from being targeted by the Americans but in practice, it had also been a way to keep Korolev from gaining power and leverage within his own country. His colleague, Boris Chertok, was asked to write a draft of the obituary, and in his draft, he included a line that said, quote, Korolev remained an ardent patriot and steadfastly pursued his goal to fulfill the dream of spaceflight, despite years of unjust persecution. The government deleted that specific line, but it did keep the praise of him. It published his obituary and revealed him finally to the country and to the world.
6: I, I, I think the, the folks that were in charge at the time, particularly Brezhnev, um, felt that they needed to honor Korolev for his contributions, it, which were huge. Um, you know, to Soviet history and the advancement of the Soviet Union, and frankly to, you know, human exploration history.
2: The obituary was published on Sunday, January 16th, 1966, and news of it went out over the radio. The government identified their chief rocket designer. The mastermind of Sputnik, Luna, Yuri Gagarin's flight, Valentina Tereshkova's flight, essentially Every achievement the Soviets had made in space. They finally identified him as Sergei Pavlovich Korolev. The next day, there was a massive state funeral for Korolev. His open casket was placed in a grand columned room in the House of Unions. This was the same place where Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Stalin's bodies had lay in state after their deaths. Korolev was getting the same treatment as the most well-known leaders of Russia. A massive portrait was painted of Korolev overnight, and it was draped outside as the snow fell. Thousands and thousands of Russians lined up in the bitter January cold of Moscow. In the old footage, you can see people's breaths. It was that kind of cold. But they were out there, filling the streets. Crowds poured through the room full of wreaths and flowers to pay their respects to Korolev. And why... This was a man whose name they had never even heard two days earlier. In his memoirs, Boris Chertok reflected on his sense of why all these people went to honor his colleague and friend. He wrote, quote, a particle of truth had finally been revealed to them. They had finally been told who deserved tribute for human civilization's greatest triumph. Toward the end of my time researching Korolev's life and death, I asked Bill Barry a question. We were once again talking in his office in NASA headquarters You'll remember he was the one who introduced me to Korolev in the first place, the one who had a photograph of Korolev on his desk that initially caught my eye. He is the one who pointed me in the direction of which books and papers I should read to learn more about him. So um, why is it that you have a photo of him on your desk? Ah. Well, I like the picture.
6: Uh, it's uh, you know, so 19, late 19, After After the war, he's out of the gulag. He's... You know, thinner than uh, it would be later, um, and uh, just to, and there's something about the look on his face, like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm finally free, and I got a chance to do what I want to do: build rockets and and, and maybe explore space. And Sergey Korolev is the is the embodiment of um, what what one person can do if they stay focused and and um, and you know, applied the best of their abilities to things, and he had um, a huge vision for you know, kind of where he could go, and where you know, where the people he was leading could go, um, and was completely um, willing to you know, roll the dice on achieving his objectives. Um, a huge risk taker, I think, uh, in many respects. And I think, in uh, a large part, he was a huge risk taker because he figured, what have I got to lose? They already tried to kill me multiple times already. You know, it's amazing I've made it this far. And so I think that, you know, he, he, he just went for it. You know, um, it was, you know, he, he lived a rough life. You know, would the Soviet Union have Achieve what it did um, without Korolev? Nope, I think that's very clear. The person who's, who's eventually selected to replace him, there really isn't that replacement, but uh, his deputy, Vasily Mishin, is the guy who's selected to replace him. Um, Uh, Mishin's a competent engineer and a good guy, uh, but he's no Sergei Korolev. uh, And there is no Sergei Korolev.
2: Less than a month after Korolev's death, the new lunar probe he had helped design had the first ever successful soft landing on the moon. And shortly after that, the probe that Korolev had launched for Venus successfully hit that planet. This was the first time any human-made object had reached the surface of another planet in the solar system, in the universe. When the probe crashed into Venus on March 1st, 1966, it scattered Soviet pennants. On one side of the coins, the hammer and the sickle. On the other side, the date that Korolev had sent that probe, up and into the beyond. Over in the United States of America by this time, 1966, Lyndon Johnson was a year into his first term as elected president.
1: And a landslide vote returned him to office with Hubert Humphrey as his vice president.
2: Civil rights protests and legislation were in the news. U.S. military involvement in Vietnam was ratcheting up, and the march was continuing to the moon. There were three big human spaceflight projects along that march. The first was Project Mercury, that was getting American astronauts into space, period. Those were also all solo flights, The second stage was Project Gemini. These were two-person crews that more closely simulated a lunar mission. So they spent longer stretches in space, did more difficult maneuvers, that kind of thing. By the way, fun little fact, if you want to sound like a space historian, you have to say Gemini, not Gemini. Then the third stage was Project Apollo. These were three-person crews, and they would build toward the final actual lunar landing. By the end of 1966, the flights for Project Gemini were completed, and the Apollo flights were about to begin.
1: Astronauts walk and work. Their capsules make multiple dockings with Agena target vehicles. They soar 850 miles above Earth, create artificial gravity, shoot fantastic space pictures, use no-hands automatic re-entry controls, and return in a series of pinpoint bullseye splashdowns. Gemini astronauts build a firm foundation for the future Apollo moon landing.
2: But despite some of the good progress, Johnson was getting calls from Jim Webb warning that NASA still risked not making the moon landing within the decade. There was a chance the Soviet Union would beat them to it. Johnson remained committed to Apollo But he found a way to hedge his bets, just in case. On January 27, 1967, President Johnson hosted the signing of the United Nations Outer Space Treaty at the White House. This was a global pact that space exploration would only be used for peaceful purposes and that countries wouldn't lay claim to the moon or to other celestial bodies.
6: The Outer Space Treaty was was one of those things that both the Soviet Union and the United States had an interest in, in bounding the game a bit, um, just in case they lost. And so uh, the Outer Space Treaty becomes kind of a, a cluster of things that everybody can agree on that that uh, uh, are rules of the game that that they could live with uh, if they won, and they could also live with it if, they, if they lost the race into space.
2: A number of astronauts were there at the signing in Washington. Neil Armstrong, Jim Lovell but the Apollo 1 crew was down in Florida. These three Apollo 1 astronauts, Roger Chaffee, Gus Grissom, and Ed White, were going through tests in advance of their launch the following month to orbit Earth. Theirs would be the first of the Apollo missions leading toward the moon landing. The three of them were at launch pad 34, which, is set back in the dunes but is still pretty close to the ocean. I went down to the Cape last year to see it. The whole place is kind of a wild eerie mix of this ruggedly beautiful seashore and then concrete and scaffolding of launch pads and blockhouses. That afternoon at 1 p.m., it was a Friday, The three men got into their spacesuits and they climbed into the command module at pad 34. Grissom noticed a weird sort of sour scent in his oxygen supply. The crew tested it but decided to keep going. Then an indicator popped up that the oxygen flow to all of the astronauts was abnormally high. The crew thought that they identified the cause for that issue And again, they kept going. Next, their communications system seemed to be on the fritz. What was going on? They fixed it and kept going. It was now 6.30 p.m. The sun had set in the winter sky and the dividing line between ocean and air was blurring. Twilight had set in at the Cape. It was quiet except for the chill wind and the waves offshore, and the technical chatter of the crew members monitoring the three astronauts. Another warning now came in over the instruments. The astronauts' oxygen supply was quickly rising for some reason. This is extremely painful and disturbing to listen to, so you might want to fast forward about 20 seconds. But here is the actual recording from inside their capsule. Fire. they couldn't open the hatch. On his Mercury flight in 1961, Gus Grissom's hatch had opened prematurely on his landing in the ocean, flooding his capsule with water. This time, the hatch was designed to be more difficult to open, and he couldn't get out. He and Roger Chaffee and Edward White couldn't get out. Ground crew members rushed toward the module, but they couldn't reach it in time. Flames and smoke were pouring out. All three astronauts died trapped in there. President Johnson got the news at the White House just a few hours after the Outer Space Treaty was signed. Johnson wrote condolence letters to the families of the astronauts who died. In the one to Roger Chaffee's, he wrote, To expand our knowledge of the heavens is to seek a richer life on Earth. But which lives, so far, were richer for it? People were dying in pursuit of this dream, and for what? For the first time in a while, the American public had reason to wonder, is this worth it? Was anything on this planet any better than it had been before? Neil Armstrong and the other astronauts who had been at the White House were already back at their hotel that night when they heard the news. They holed up together in a suite on the fifth floor of the Georgetown Inn, ordering bottle after bottle of scotch they talked about the fate of the apollo program and death and how worse than dying in space or being left alone on the moon with a broken spaceship was dying like their friends had tonight dying locked inside a rocket right here on earth The hours ticked on, and the lights flickered off outside their window across Washington. It was the depths of a winter night. The cold dawn was somewhere far off, and still, Armstrong stayed up. All of them did, together drunk, bleary eyed, thoughts blurring, and haunted by flames. next episode of Moonrise, Vietnam, civil rights, and the liftoff for the moon. Thanks for listening to the Moonrise podcast. If you want to support this and other journalism projects from The Washington Post, there's a special subscription discount for Moonrise listeners. Just go to WashingtonPost.com slash Moonrise Offer. Moonrise is a Washington Post audio podcast. It's the result of the work of my very demanding producer, Bishop Sand, project coordinator, Allison Michaels, art designer, Courtney Kahn, director of audio, Jess Stahl, and the editing help of Carol Alderman. Our podcast launch event was hosted by the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. The experts who appeared on this episode were Bill Barry, chief historian of NASA the historian Roger Lanius, space policy professor at American University Howard McCurdy, and Margaret Weidekamp, a historian with the National Air and Space Museum. Archival audio is from Critical Past, NASA, the CBC, and the Miller Center at the University of Virginia. I'm Lillian Cunningham, the creator and host of Moonrise. Join us next week for the penultimate episode Chapter 11.
4: He got up there and uh, he said, Who's driving? That's a good question. I think Isaac to is doing most of the driving right now.